Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. Albert Barr was one of the most captivating speakers to ever stand behind the sacred desk. In 1994, he served as youth evangelist for Seabreeze Camp Meeting in Hope Sound, Florida. In one of the services, he talked to the young people about this subject, the reality of this world. I know you're going to enjoy this wonderful message. Keep passing it on and on. Bibles and would like to stand with me. Let's read some scripture found in Romans chapter 8. We're going to begin with verse 18. I trust that as we read and as we speak to you that you'll keep in mind what you've already heard in this service. In Romans 8:18, 8, Paul says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Heavenly Father, thank you for coming to our service today. Thank you for the ministry and song and by your Spirit. Thank you for your grace that reached down to Tim LeBeau and brought him out of sin. And I pray, O oh God, that you would project that grace and the possibilities of that grace to the entire body of young people that are here today. And might we make right choices, I pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. You may be seated. I gave almost 20 years of my life to Christian education. I believe in Christian education. That's not the subject of the message today, except as a starting point, young people. You know, if you were in Christian school, and I know that most of you are, that one of the arguments that is often used against Christian education by those who do not have a vision for it and do not see the need for it, one of the things that any of us who ever have been involved in and contended for 
the need for Christian education, one of the arguments, the stock arguments we always run into, will go something like this. It'll say, you know, you take those young people and you put them into a Christian school. You, you put them into a, a protected environment to protect them from the world. What happens is you make hothouse plants out of them. And, uh, oh, they do fine when they're in their Christian school, but when the day comes, as it invariably must, that they have to go out and face the real world, they wilt. Well, now, first of all, that's not true. I've watched you, and you don't wilt. But the reason I even refer to that in the context of what I want to speak to you about today is because there is an assumption underlying that that is false. And yet I hear people, many of whom profess themselves to be Christians, who do not see the need for Christian education, and they make that statement. And besides my disagreement with them on the, on the education issue, they are making an assumption. They are buying into a philosophy that is not true, and yet it's all around us. And if you aren't careful, you'll buy into it, and it affects far more than just your education. It affects your entire life. And that is the assumption that the real world, is the world of the here and now, the world of time and sense and of things, the world of cars and houses and clothes and furniture, the world of jobs and of paychecks and vacations. That's the real world. And the world of the spirit, the world of God and of angels and of devils, for that matter, the world of heaven and of hell, the spiritual world, is sort of a never-never fantasy, far away, nebulous sort of a something that maybe we give lip service to on Sundays, but the real world, where the rubber meets the road, the real world is the world of here and now. Young people, that's not true. This is not the real world. Now, please do not misunderstand me. You and I must live in this world. And that means that we have to have jobs and paychecks. When you start a family, God requires of you that you provide for that family. We do have to have homes. And in our world, we do have to have automobiles and I'm in no way suggesting that the Christian is supposed to go up and find a cave somewhere and sit there and meditate till Jesus comes. That is not what I'm suggesting. But I am saying that for those of us who name the name of Christ, this should never be what it's all about. This should never be the real world. Now, the Bible gives you the choice of choosing which world you will live for. Those who talk about this world, the real world, and the heavenly world are correct about one thing. They are separate worlds. There, there is more than one world. You can live for this world or you can live for the heavenly world. In fact, Jesus called them this present time or the world to come. The Bible teaches that there is the world of the flesh and that there is the world of the spirit. Not only that, but the Bible teaches that these two worlds are hostile to each other. Romans 8, 5, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, and they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. 
Romans 8, 8, So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Not only that, but the Bible teaches that you young people have the right to choose which world you will live for. And let me tell you something. If God gives you that right, I would be a fool to try to take it away from you. You have the right to choose which world you will live for. And God himself will not violate that right. And if you choose to put all of your hope and all of your stock in this world, you have every right to do it. And no preacher, no potentate has any right to come and try to take that away from you and force you to live for any world. You remember there was a time when a rich young ruler came to Jesus. Good master, what must I do to be in the kingdom? Jesus looked down into his heart, saw his particular problem, told him something he didn't tell everyone. But knowing what his need was, he said, I want you to go and sell what you have and give to the poor and come and follow me. And the Bible says that that rich young ruler turned and walked away from Jesus, sorrowful. He had great riches and he was not willing to pay that price. And yet the Bible says that Jesus loved him. The original, the word is very strong. Jesus longed for him. I read that and I said, how can that be? How could anyone turn and walk away from Jesus if Jesus wanted him? Do you know who this is? It's Jesus. This is God. This is the one who spoke worlds into existence, who sprinkled the heavens with the stars, who rolled out the earth in his palms, who scooped out the valleys and heaped up the mountains and rolled out the carpets of grass and tacked them down with daffodils and peopled the sea with the fish and the air with the birds and the forest with the animals. This is the God who created angels. This is the God who multiplied the loaves and fishes and raised the dead and healed the sick. He can have anything he wants. And all he'd have had to do, all Jesus would have had to do, is to say the word, and that young man would have spun on his heels and goose-stepped behind Jesus like some kind of a robot. But though Jesus wanted him, he let him walk away. Because our God doesn't work that way. And you may not understand what I'm going to say now, and I do not have the time to go into it in depth. But let me tell you, it was better in God's economy of things for that young man to go to hell, a man, than to go to heaven, a robot, a zombie, an automaton. And I'm warning you right now, young people, because they're out there. Any religion, any philosophy, any cult, any group that tries to take away your free will, your free moral agency, and make you be anything, including good and holy, you run from it with all your might. It is not of God. Whether it calls itself moonies or whether it calls itself holiness, I nor anyone else have any right to make you do anything. And if you want to be bad, God will let you be bad. But I'm here to tell you, if you want to be good, all the devils in hell can't keep you from it. But the choice is yours. You make the choice. I hope I've made it plain that I respect 
your right to make the choice. And yet surely you want to make the right choice. It would be insane to want to make wrong choices. You want to choose the right world. You want to live for the right world. And I think you know that the person who makes the best choices, the wisest choices, are the ones who have the most information usually. So what I'd like to do today is simply share with you some information about this present world that many are living their lives for and that you will not only once or twice at a excuse me at an altar but over and over and over again will make the choice as to which world you will live for so i'd like to simply tell you about this present world you see the bible does not teach that we are to be aesthetics that we are to be hermits we must live in the world but we are not to be part of the world Jesus prayed for his disciples and he prayed for me and he prayed for you. In John 17, verse 14, for example, I have given them, he's praying to the Father, speaking of his disciples, I have given them thy word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And, and uh, finally, he would pray down in verse 20, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. That means you and I. The Bible does not teach isolation. It teaches insulation. And if God can create a worm that can crawl through a mud puddle and come out clean, he can help you and I to live in this wicked world and keep ourselves pure. But the choice is left up to you. Let me tell you about this present world. Look at our verse, if you have it still out there, Romans 8, 18, For I reckon, I think Paul was a southerner, by the way, you hear him, For I reckon. <laughs> and he often said, Y'all. Go ahead and read it, you'll find he often said, Y'all. But here he says, For I reckon. Now the word there for reckon is the word that we get logic from. It means to make real by faith. In other words, the Christians make things real by faith. By faith we understand, the Bible says. And so we make it real. For example, the same apostle would use this very word when he said, Reckon yourselves de dead indeed unto sin. He said, Make it real by faith. But when he's using it here, remember, it's the word that we get logic from. What he's actually saying is that this present world, this world of the here and now, is an illogical world. It is an insane world, if you please. Young people, I hate to tell you this, but you and I live in the middle of one vast insane asylum. And you can choose to live here if you want to and to live for this if you want to, but I contend you're making a very foolish choice if you do. I never cease to be amazed at what passes for wisdom and intelligence in this world. Some of the dumb things that people say and think it's wise. I told you earlier, I paid for a good education and they taught me foolishness. They taught me lies. They taught me emptiness. And while these professors with vast degrees at the end of their names were sitting around trying to figure out how the world got here, the little washerwoman who knows Jesus knows how the world got here. While their philosophers are trying to figure out what life's all about, the little mill hand who knows Jesus knows what life's all about. 
because they are not part of this vast insane asylum. I remember one time years ago I was driving along and I passed a movie theater and the current movie showing on the marquee there was, it's a mad, 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 mad world. I said, buddy, you don't know the half of it. It's worse than that. It's an insane asylum. It would have to be. I mean, when you listen to what even the politicians of our day suggest as remedies for our problems, they're not the remedies, they're the problems. I was riding along some time ago, tuning across the radio, picked up this guy, a talk show, his host on there. He, was, he had a lawyer on there, and he, they were arguing over legalizing marijuana. And his argument went like this. He said, you know, I doubt that there's any law in the land that's more consistently broken, with the possible exception of the speed laws, than the marijuana laws. And since people break the law, the way you solve that is to do away with the law. Now, there's a real brilliant solution to the problem. We could absolutely wipe crime off the face of the earth. Just do away with all the laws. Can't break a law that ain't. And you know, by that law, this guy's supposed to be intelligent. He's a lawyer. I thought I used to think that meant you were intelligent. I confess I'm not so sure anymore. And by his own argument, if people break laws, you do away with the law. Then he said that they break the speed laws more than anything else. Let's start with that. If you want to drive 110 mile an hour down Gomez here, go to it. Now, some of you guys might like that, but I think we'd soon learn that that isn't a good thing. I am just simply dumbfounded. When I, sometimes when I deal with young people, especially when I'm dealing with creation and science, it's like I have, I have a little mechanical dog, a little electric battery-driven dog, that I'll sit up on the platform and I'll throw the little hidden switch and the dog will, will walk four steps, moving its head, go whoop, 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 stop and wag its tail a few times, and then, whoop, 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 and everybody giggles and finally, and I'll fish for it, but finally somebody will ask the question, who made that? Where'd you get that? Oh, nobody made it. It just, you know, there was a bunch of junk lying around out there on the beach and the waves washed them back and forth and just happened to slosh everything into the right place at the right time and out came this little dog. And everybody will kind of giggle and look at each other and say, Brother Barr, you know that's not true. Of course you know that's not true. But I paid for a college education and they told me that not a little mechanical dog that walks four steps, wiggles its tail and, and barks four times, but a real dog that can chase a rabbit through the woods on a dewy morning. A real dog that can bring puppies into the world. A real dog that can bark at the moon. That he just came about by chance. Just everything got together. I'm not real bright, kids, but I'm not that dumb. And yet they taught me that. What I'm trying to say is there's something, young people, you turn God off, you turn God out of your life, and your mind goes dark. Romans tells of one, and Romans one tells of somebody of a group that professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and worshipped and served the creature rather than, is the real word there, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And it happens, young people, and you have the choice. Choose to live for this insane asylum if you want to, but I think you're wrong. I used to manage a hamburger shop. One day a young man appeared there and wanted a job. He was in the college in the neighboring town. I hired him, soon discovered he was a brilliant young man. I mean sharp. And I began to witness, as God would allow, to him about Jesus. And, boy, I found out in a hurry he was one sharp fella. He was no pushover. He would ask me searching, piercing questions 
And I would often have to say, I'm sorry, I don't know the answer to that. I'll go home and try to dig something up tonight and tell you tomorrow. He gave me a courteous hearing. Finally, the end of the school year came. He had not yet come to know Christ, though he was, I believe, moving that way. He said, Mr. Barr, my school's out. I'm going back to my home state. But when I come back to school in the fall, can I have a job back? And I said, if, certainly if the business is up and we need help, I'd be delighted for you to come back. He'd been a good worker. And so sure enough, in the fall, he appeared and wanted his job back, and I rehired him. And I was looking forward to continuing what we'd begun. But, oh, I discovered so soon that something was horribly wrong. He couldn't remember the simple little task that he'd done as second nature the year before. He could hardly speak. His eyes had a glazed look. And I discovered that during the summer he had experimented with drugs and it burned his mind away. He could not even understand hardly simple commands, let alone the deep things of the Spirit. He'd slammed the door and locked his mind. What kind of insanity would possess any intelligent human being to do something like that? It's the insanity of sin, young people. You can live for this world if you want to, but I must tell you that it is a vast insane asylum. Young people, you know, we really shouldn't feel too much at home here. Would you want to feel comfortable in an insane asylum? Would you want to feel at home in an insane asylum? It's not reasonable that you and I, created in the image of God, created, as, as Brother LeBeau said in his testimony, with a, a capacity, a void for God that only God can fill. And for us to try to fill that with the beggarly elements of this world is insanity. You might as well go out and feed a horse the 23rd Psalms and expect him to get fat off of it. They're not compatible. Would you want to feel at home when you weren't made? for this world. My brother, my younger brother Leslie and I, we lived in Japan for a while and we would at times get on the train and ride into Ikebukuro, a suburb of Tokyo. We were just teenagers. It was a different day then. The exchange rate was much different than it is now and you could take just a few yen and buy just about anything. And one dollar was worth many, many yen, hundreds of yen. And so my brother and I would take a little bit and we would ride into Ikebukuro and we would get off and we would walk the streets of Japan. Maybe we would see a, it was a different day, Japan was not as westernized as it is now, and maybe, maybe we'd meet an, an older Japanese man with his long flowing white beard and his, his wooden clogs and his robes, or maybe a, a woman in her kimono. And my brother and I'd say, <laughs> look at that, look at the stupid way they dress. No, we didn't. We're not that dumb. We knew that if anybody needed pointed at, it was us. We were the ones who didn't fit. This was their world, not ours. We were the ones who were strangers and foreigners there. We were the ones who were out of step. Maybe I'd, we'd go into a restaurant, and we'd go in. We couldn't read the menu, but they used our number system, so uh, the number system. I don't. That wasn't a good way to say it, but I knew how much it cost. I knew what I could afford, so I'd go through, and I'd, I'd point out some stuff we could afford, and they'd bring it to us, and we'd eat it, and I don't know what it was. <laughs> some of it went down kicking, I can tell you that. I don't know what the stuff. 
And we'd say, look at the stupid stuff these Japanese eat. No, we didn't. We knew that we were the ones who didn't belong here. We were the ones who weren't at home here. Maybe uh, we'd hear a, a Japanese street musician playing his little one-string samisan, and he'd twang, we'd say, oh, listen to that stupid music. No, we didn't. We knew that we were the ones who were out of step with the culture. We weren't home. And young people, I'm not at home here. Seldom, but once in a while my wife and I will go to the mall and I'll sit there while she shops and I watch the people go by. And every now and then I say, calling earth, calling earth. <laughs> I don't belong here. I don't want to feel real at home here. I was created for another world, and so were you. And yes, we live here. Though I realize you can take that to a bizarre length, but I am saying that in the Christian there ought to always be a sense that we are pilgrims and strangers, that we are looking for a city who has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. I'm not talking about deliberately not fitting. I'm saying recognize that our music is from another world, our dress is for another world, where they name the streets holiness and where the Son of God reigns. Don't want to feel too much at home here. But not only that, but this scripture says that this world is not only a vast insane asylum, but it is also a world of shadow and illusion. Again, we look at verse 18 of Romans 8. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present world, this present age, this present time, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. The glory, the beauty, the radiance, the light. This is a world of shadow and illusion, young people. This is not the real world. Do you see it? He would, Paul would write the Corinthian church and he would say, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. John would write and say, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is, and every man that hath this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. To the writer of the Hebrews we find, For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things. This is not the real world. This is a world of shadow and illusion. Young people, I don't want to sound too mystical here, and yet I think there is a mysticism about it. I don't believe that there's anyone in this auditorium that loves the beauty of this world more than I do. I feel sorry for some, young and old, who seem to walk through this world and never smell the flowers and never see the beauty. There are times when I am so overcome with the magnificence of God's creation till I catch my breath at the wonder and the beauty of it. I sometimes think that others must be deaf and blind. I remember when we were living here in Florida and teaching. We owned a home way up at the end of Gomez, up there on Helen Terrace, had a big two-car garage, couldn't get anything in it, because couldn't get cars in it because it had so much junk in it. But I had the door up, and I was standing out at the sidewalk one day looking at that open door with all the plunder, and my son-in-law, Paul Wilson, drove up. I didn't even hear him come up. I was enthralled. I was entranced. 
He came and stood beside me, and he looked at me, and he looked in my direction, the direction I was looking. Finally, he said, Dad? I said, oh, hi. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm looking at the garage door. You are? Yeah. What for? I said, well, just look. There's that big open rectangle. Now, look within that rectangle. Over here, you've got shiny little round hard objects, but over there, you've got big, dull, furry objects. Down here, you've got little red square objects, but look up there. He said, you're nuts. <laughs> no, I revel in the beauty of this world. I've scanned the heavens with the telescope to the university and cried with the beauty and the wonder of it all. And I've asked God if it could be in his will to someday let me explore those wonders. I'd like to be a celestial naturalist. And I don't think that's nearly so funny as what some people would laugh and think. And yet I must tell you something else, young people. There have been just a few times in my life, in prayer or meditation, when God has come so near that for just a moment I caught a glimpse of another world. For just a moment it seemed that I heard the music of another world. For just a moment I caught a glimpse, and it's ruined me, it's spoiled me for this world. This is just a world of shadow and illusion. This is, this is not what God really has for his people. The Bible teaches that I have not seen nor ear heard the things that God has prepared for his children, but he has revealed them unto us by his Spirit. And oh, I'm telling you, young people, you can pitch your tent here, you can live for this world, you can put all your hopes here, but you are living for a world of shadow and illusion if you do. The Bible says that this world is a seeking world. If we look at verse 19 of our text, it says, For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. The words there, earnest expectation, one word in the original, it, it's the word that means seeking. It means unsatisfied. It means to go around with your head outstretched, looking for, searching, longing. And I've watched those who have decided they were going to live for this world, and I've watched them seek and long and search and never find what they were looking for. How many who have pitched their tent here, have put all their hopes here, would tell us that they have not found in their stars and in their heroes what they had hoped for. The Bible says that this world is a vain world, an empty world, a foolish world. Again in verse 20, for the creature was made subject to vanity, to emptiness, to foolishness. One translation says frustration and disappointment, an empty world. How many have somehow got this idea that if I can just, if, if I can drive that car, if I could have that job, if I could make that figure of an income, if I could live in that house on that side of town, if I could marry that woman or that man, if I could have this I'd be happy. How many have I seen over the years come here to Bible school, sometimes come because they felt God had called them to preach and they've got their eyes on this world. If I could make that figure, if I could have that job. And so they turned aside from the plan of God and very often they compromise their convictions and 
jeopardize their family and sell their children down the tube. And years go by and they violate their own conscience and they work and they slave and finally they get that job and they get that promotion and they make that figure and they drive that car and they live in that house. And they would tell you it's all so empty. I think of Jimmy. Jimmy was probably the most promising young man I have ever known. I mean charisma plus. Jimmy came to our little country church, got saved, felt God called him to preach. The church helped send him off to Bible school. He lasted only a few weeks. When he got there and found out what Bible school was all about, he suddenly wasn't so interested anymore. Fane sick, came back home, only stayed in the church a few more weeks, went his way. But Jimmy had that Midas touch. Everything he turned, turned to gold. In his early 20s, he became a multi-millionaire. He owned businesses on every quadrant of our little city. And about once a year, Jimmy would drive up to our little country church in his new Cadillac. Nothing wrong with the Cadillac, but to him it was obviously a status symbol. He'd get out in his broadcloth suit with diamond rings on every finger and a diamond stud in his tie in this little poverty country church. He would come in and beam down upon us and grace us with his presence and drop a hundred dollars in our little offering plate and let us all know that he was doing quite well. Thank you. And I also remember the day when they found Jimmy, my friend Jimmy, Parked in his Cadillac in the middle of the woods with a hose running from the exhaust pipe and in the window and a note on the front seat saying, It's all so empty. I'm telling you, young people, you can live for this world if you want to. God himself will not take that right away from you. But you need to know when you make that decision that this is an empty world. It's a vain, foolish world. I'm thinking of a sergeant who got to come into our little church from the local Air Force base. He'd been bad to drink. Really, he'd been an alcoholic. But he came, and God got a hold of his heart, and he sought the Lord and found Christ and found deliverance from the bottle and Oh, his life just began to blossom. And his wife was so glad that he'd found Jesus because it got him off the bottle. And after a few months as he grew in the Lord, he began to think that maybe God was calling him to preach. And when his stint was up in the military, that he would go to Bible college. But when he began to voice that interest, his wife dug in her heels. Oh, no, 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 no. Wait just a minute. I grew up, she said, I didn't know this until she said it. She said, I grew up in a holiness parsonage, and I'm not going to be a holiness preacher's wife. Not me. I know the poverty. I know the way it is, and I'm not. You can, If you want to be a preacher, you'll go by yourself, not me. I'm not sitting on an orange crate and drinking out of a mason jar, not me. With her wife not going along, he did what most men will do if the women dig in their heels and refuse to cooperate. He gave up on his call and his dream, and he began to grow cool in his relationship with the Lord. And 
drifted away and backslid and went back to the bottle and became once again a drunk. And the last time I ever visited in their home, she was sitting on an orange crate drinking out of a mason jar. Wanted to live for this world instead of the next, and she found it empty. You have every right to do it. But you and your spouse and your children will pay the consequences of which world you choose to live for. How many today do I know who have lost their children because they wanted to live for this world? The Bible says this is the world in bondage. Verse 21, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. It's a beautiful structure there. It means to be liberated into liberty, to be made free to be free. And yet the world comes along and promises you liberty and yet gives you bondage. And all around us are people bound by habits, but they don't have, they, they're free. They can do their own thing. And anyone with half sense in one eye can stand back and see they're not free. I have a little brother named Kim. I love Kim very, very much. When Kim was just a little boy, still just a young'un, he joined the hippies. I know that some of us old-timers, anybody that needs a haircut is a hippie. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, this was back in the days when there were hippies, and they called themselves hippies, and he joined the hippies and walked barefooted off across the country, and that was the last we saw of him. And the years went by. I was living on a little farm in a little crossroads town called Antraville, South Carolina, 85-acre farm. I loved it. I would go out early in the spring and begin to work the ground, and I'd always plant too early, and the frost would get it, but I couldn't wait. And so I was out there one really still practically winter day, but working. And my wife came to the door and called and told me that there was a long-distance phone call. I went in, and it was a policeman in Washington State, out on the West Coast. Do you have a son named Kim? I said, no, I have a brother named Kim. He said, well, Mr. Barr said, last night we made a raid on a drug house we've been watching for some time. He said, among those we picked up, we picked up your brother. He said, the fact is he didn't have any drugs on him at the time. He was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. But said he's surly. He won't cooperate. He won't answer any questions. He won't talk to us. He said, to be honest with you, I hate for him to have to spend the night in jail. If he does, it'll be on his record. Is there anything you could do to help? He said, I went through his stuff and I found this name and this telephone number and I thought you might be his father. He said, could you help? I said, put him on. I said, what's wrong, Kim? He said, all oh, these blankety blank, 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 blank fuzz come raining in and they're blankety blank. I said, hold it. He wasn't using blank. I said, wait just a minute. I said, Kim, look, buddy. I said, I- I'm not even concerned about any of that. I said, the officer says he doesn't want you to have to spend the night in jail. I don't want you to spend the night in jail. Would you let me help you? I believe that he'd turn you over to my custody if you'd agree to it. I don't want to come to you. You bunch of religious fanatics. All you want to do is go to church. You have to dress a certain way and can't do anything. I said, Kim, listen, buddy. I'm not trying to trap you. I'm not trying to trick you. I said, if you'll let me help you and you come here. I was managing a machine shop and a welding shop at that time. And I said, if you'll come here, I'll give you a job if you want. If you want to just go right on from here your way. 
whatever, it'll be all right. I just, I'm not trying to trap you. I just want to help. Let me help you. And he began to cry. And I discovered he wasn't any big tough guy. He was a little kid that had been caught trying to put on a show. So he agreed. And the officer came back on. He said, well, I, all you, he said, I'll have to have you wire me the money for a plane ticket. I'll have to take him, put him on the plane, and then he'll be in your custody. I went into town and wired the money to the West Coast, and he was to arrive that night in Charlotte, North Carolina. We lived in a big old farmhouse, fixed up a special room just for him. And that night I drove to Charlotte. It was bitter cold, nearly sleeting. The plane came in, and the passengers got off, and... As the plane was nearly empty, no, no brother, I thought, my, what has happened? What's he done? And finally, this, I'd, when I'd seen him last, he was a, just a kid. Here was this tall, lanky, skinny guy with an afro that big. I mean, you couldn't, it looked like an explosion in a mattress factory. He had real kinky hair. You couldn't tell which end came out of his head. And there it's, I didn't even know they'd let you ride in a plane the way he was dressed, almost undressed, in wintertime, cold. And he was coming from Washington State, a pair of tennis shoes and torn off blue jeans and sort of a tank top. We went down to get his baggage, everything he owned, in a half-full backpack. We loaded up and we headed home. I told him, Kim, I meant what I said. I'm not trying to trap you. If you want to move on, you're welcome to spend the night and move on. But I said, if you'd like to stay, I can give you a job. We can teach you a trade. I said, if you stay in our home, we'll have minimum requirements. If you stay in our home, if you're home when we have devotions, I want you to be there. There'll be no drinking, no drugs, no smoking, no rock music, no magazines that I would not approve of. Beyond that, you're pretty much on your own. And he agreed. Came to work. He, I, I had to require him to get a haircut. OSHA rules required that. He's going to work around machinery, and he got a haircut. Put him under the tutelage of one of my welders, taught him Meg and Healy Ark welding, and he today makes his living as a welder. But it wasn't too long before he began to chafe under even those minimum requirements. Lived with us for a good while, but began to buck the rules and finally on his own accord moved out, found some hippie friends in town, and moved out and lived with them, though he still worked at the shop. Summertime came in the hot South Carolina summer. He would come to work. He would be so sticky with sweat till he could hardly move. But he couldn't take a bath. His hippie friends would make fun of him. One day we were riding somewhere to look at a job, and I brought up the subject of his salvation, and he reacted. He said, listen, he said, I'm not going that way. He said, oh, you've got rules and regulations. He said, I'm free. <laughs> free. When you can't take a bath when you'd like to, you aren't free. But he thought he was. The devil blinded his eyes, offering him liberty. They made him in bondage, and he didn't even see it. And all around you are young people, not only the classical bondages of lust and drugs and alcohol, but in bondage to all kinds of the thoughts of others and the, 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 the opinions of others and Oh, I'll tell you, the greatest freedom one can ever know is to be free in Jesus Christ. The greatest freedom you can ever know is to be the servant of Jesus. You can live for this world if you want to, but I warn you, it is a world of bondage. 
It is a suffering world. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Every heartache, every broken home, every accident, they're part of this world. You want to live for this world? You have the right. But it is a world of shadow and illusion, a world of insanity, a world of seeking but not finding, a world of emptiness, a world of suffering, a world of brokenness. I think of Judy. Judy was my girlfriend when I was in my early teens, one of those little puppy loves that comes along and is so sweet for a while but has no depth. Judy was a lovely young girl. She was president of our youth society in our little holiness church. Pretty, feminine, frilly little Judy. She could play the piano so beautifully. She could sing like a nightingale. And she was my girlfriend. But we got off into the junior high school and it was the day of the miniskirt and suddenly after Judy would leave her holiness home, when she'd get to school, she'd tuck her skirts up under the belt so they'd be short like the other girls wore theirs. And she began to paint her face and do things that she knew her mama would not allow. And when I mentioned it to Judy, she said, why don't you just mind your own business? I just want to fit in. Well, our little puppy love blew over, and eventually I would grow to meet the woman that God had for me, and we would court for a couple years and marry and move away and take a church and start a family. But the years went by, and I began to hear disturbing rumors about Judy. One vacation time, my wife and I traveled back to the old hometown, went to the old home church. And after the service, an elderly lady in the church came and said, Al, followed those directions, my heart began to sink, for I realized we were moving into the bad section of the old hometown, and then even into the red light district of the old hometown. Finally, we pulled up in front of the house that it seemed to be the correct house by the instructions, but there must be a mistake. Nobody could live here. Big old two-story house, but it appeared to be abandoned. Broom straw, waist deep in the art cold winter weather even in South Carolina and no lights and the, most of the windows rags and cardboard stuck over the holes but it seemed to be the house and so the wife and I went up on the porch and we knocked several times no answer there must be a mistake but just as I was about to turn and go my wife whispered to me someone's there I saw the blind move down at the far end of the porch so I knocked again and I said if no one comes to the door I'm coming in the door opened, big, tall fella. Yeah. Do you have someone here by the name of Judy? Upstairs, room so-and-so. So my wife went into that cold, smelly, dirty, dingy house of ill fame. We stepped over the greasy mattresses on the floor and the piles of beer cans and needles Long before we got to the top of the dingy stairs, we were both weeping. There must be a mistake. Not Judy. Not pretty little, frilly little, talented Sunday school youth president. Judy. Not here. No. But we found the door that's been told to 
was hers and we knocked at the door and a feeble voice said, Enter. We went in, dark, cold, tall ceilings, most of the windows covered with cardboard and rags to try to keep out the cold and not one stick of furniture in that entire room with the exception of an old mattress on the floor. And lying on that mattress under an old army blanket was Judy. And she was very sick. We knelt on either side, weeping. She'd had plenty of friends when she'd been well and pretty and strong and able to please. But now she'd been sick for days and no one administered to her. Nobody cared. I do not buy on Sunday as a matter of conviction. But I felt like here was certainly an emergency situation and so I left my wife with Judy and I went out and I bought some soup and things I thought she could eat in her weak condition. Took them back. My wife fed her like a baby. And as we all cried beside Judy, yellow, cadaverous, shrunken face, I said, Judy, if I had told you back there when you were tucking up your skirts and painting your face and wanting to fit in with this world, that you would come to this, would you have believed me? She said, no. I said, Judy, if I were to tell you now that in six months you'll be in hell, would you believe me? She said, easily, easily. She lived for this world. And she found it empty. The young people, I feel strongly about your right to choose. But I feel strongly about the consequences of that choice. Today, God will allow you to choose what world you want to live for. And if you want to live for this world and fashion and fame and money and popularity and good times in this world, God will let you do it. But I remind you, you're living for a world that is dying, that will soon pass away, a world of open, uh, brokenness and emptiness, a world of insanity, a world of shadow, a world of seeking but not finding. But the choice is yours. Which choice will it be? I don't want to take for granted the heritage of holiness that has been passed on. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. I don't wanna